Hi, everybody. Welcome. This is the Stephen D. Kelly Show. My name is Stephen D. Kelly. This is Truth Cat Radio, www.truthcatradio.com. It is June 17th, 2021. It's now 6 p.m. <sighs> Pretty warm. It's only about, well, never mind. The title of tonight's show is The True Origins of Nazism. Okay, now, first of all, that title may not be entirely accurate because although we endeavor to show you the true origins of Nazism and although that is a very high priority of the journey we're going to take, what's really more, well, what I am going to have to do is actually essentially give you a as much of a condensed outline of the history of the world and I'm going to go back probably before the flood start from there and go on get us up to the times of Christ and then into the AD but a lot happened in the BC so I need to tell you first of all that I like to pride myself in always being right and I know that sounds ridiculous but it turns out that surprisingly enough that I'm not always right and when I'm not always right when I find that I'm not right about something that I thought that I was right about that I swore on I will correct that and it's not because I lied to you it's because the truth that I gave you was incorrect so tonight a lot of the information that I'm going to go over will correct many historical inaccuracies and right wrongs and take blame away from people and show the actual nature of where certain things came from that is so well hidden from us that we can only understand if we go as far back as possible. Now, in the process of doing this, and this is probably maybe the second or third time I've done a thorough analysis of the rise of civilization, I've spent a lot of time in what we call the Fertile Crescent. And of course, from our perspective, with the Mediterranean and the Euphrates and the Tigris and the Nile River in this area, this was our world. This was our birth of civilization. So many different cultures and empires came and went in these various areas. And as we as we go out from the flood, we'll show how these areas took, these, these cultures took greater areas, and we'll see some cultures come and go. Many, many cultures will come and go. Many areas of land, especially this land around the Fertile Crescent, you'll see that the hands have changed many times. And the reason why this is important is because the land, the ownership of the land, we call that nationalism. Now, these people that live there, they all had some form of a religion or another, and very often these religions dictated their rules, what they did, what was correct, what was right and wrong, what was socially acceptable, what were the mores of society. And this is very important because very often, as you're going to see, the mores and morals of society are connected 
directly to the institutions of these societies and these cultures, and it has always been that way, and we are going to discuss when the attack on the morals and when the decay of what was pro-human and what was not pro-human, when it started. So in order to understand Satanism, in order to understand the occult, in order to understand human sacrifice, drinking blood, all these things that we associate with what happens under the Getty, the things that are common to us now because of QAnon, because of, thank you very much, the work that we've been doing so much to expose this information, suddenly we're seeing that what we're talking about, what we're trying to expose has been going on since before the flood. And what's very important is that we realize that no one is responsible for the actions of their ancestors. Your blood does not carry your ancestors' actions. And this is very important because the concept of genocide, you will find, is rooted in a blood hatred because of actions that were taken by humans alive at some time during the scale of humanity. So we're going to look at the scale of humanity. And what I want to do, first of all, is I want to show you how these different cultures have taken into possession this fertile territory around the Tigris and Euphrates area that today we associate with Iraq and Syria and Turkey and Egypt and the Levant, which of course is Palestine and Lebanon and this area. So these areas played a critical role in the history as we know it and exchanged hands many times and we want to look at who lived where, when they ruled, what influences they left, how their religions and their belief systems affected the people that were left over and how we have these same religions and belief systems in effect today, controlling the same pagan, shamanistic, anti-human ways. And we also want to show, and I want to stress this very much, is that even though this is a conspiracy, if you will, that goes thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years, at the same time, there are humans, individuals involved. So in other words, you have to look at this as the actions of individuals at that time in their life. And this does not connect to their children until their children take up those same actions. So you cannot blame a tribe or a bloodline for the actions of individuals. And individuals can be a tiny percentage of an overall group. And usually this it is. And I'll say right up front that I myself am Catholic and I take full acceptance of the sins or the crimes of the Catholic Church, even though I believe it was infiltrated by Constantine and ceased to be a Christian entity. But at the same time, I will acknowledge that as truth that the Catholics were responsible for the Inquisition. They were responsible for the slaughter of Jews in the Holy Land. They were responsible for the slaughter of Jews in Europe, and they certainly were responsible for the Crusades, and on and on and on and on. So, before I step on anyone's toes, I want to remind you 
that everyone's toes are going to get stepped on. And I also want to say, I'm going to throw this out here before we get too far into this message, is that the word Jew is a, is is quite the problem with the way people abuse it. To be honest with you, and I hope that you will see this before the show is done, is that if you are white, if you are Hispanic, if you are even Arab, you probably are part Jewish and you have it in your bloodline. That's just the way it is. So, with that, we're going to get started. And I want to, before we go any further, I'm going to say thank you to the Jedi. And I think probably the reason why I'm doing this is because I think it needs to be done and it's going to help us move on to the next level. I really didn't know where to to go and it just grew, 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 grew. I really kind of started with the Nazis, of course, but it went from there. But unfortunately, let's start with the flood. We know before the flood, humans were doing terrible things to other humans. There was reckless behavior. There was no the morals of the world were were bad, bad enough to supposedly warrant this flood. When it uh, when it started, at least as far as we know, at least as far as our records show, we like to think of Noah. But of course, I will tell you there was another ark, and this ark is in area of Iran, but this arc is mentioned in the Epic of Gilgamesh, which we will also discuss. During the time of Noah, <coughs> people were typically living 900 years, something of this nature. His family was living 900 years. After the flood, supposedly, lifespan shortened dramatically, meaning each, each generation after Noah lost 100 years. Now, people say, you know, this is very important to understand because it's not until we get to Nimrod, say, where we where we really have a trace back to Noah because he was related directly under Noah. I want to pull some of this stuff up. Through Ham, of course, who was condemned. Yeah, there we go, Ham. All right, the bloodline of Ham... I want to bring this up right away, jump into this, because Ham, of course, is the one that is supposedly has the uh, curse because he supposedly sodomized Noah after the, after the boat landed and they were all enjoying life. Uh, so he was the... He, he, they're, they're basically throwing everything on top of him. Now, Ham had four sons, Cush, Mizrah, Put, Canaan. Canaan, of course, obviously is the founder of the Canaanites. And from him, we get quite a few who I suppose became the Hittites and the Amorites, I think are two of the ones that we would probably want to pay the most attention to. And of course, Cush is mentioned in the Bible, but we're not going to get into that. But Nimrod comes in under Cush. Okay, so one of sons, Ham's sons, Cush, had Nimrod. So <clears throat> that's pretty, what, four generations away from the flood. Now, Nimrod is the one that basically is the one that you guys consider, well... He ties into a lot of the Epic of Gilgamesh, the Babylonian Canaanite mythology, and also the, uh, I think the best word is the Anunnaki mythology. All right. So around the time of this guy is when they had most of that going on. Uh, now, but if you go further back before that time, some of the earliest, earliest societies that were even, even, uh, recorded was about 3200 BC was the Akkadians 
this was Sumer. Sumer started in about 3200, and it eventually became the Akkadians. But And the Akkadians, of course, for quite some time actually ruled most of Mesopotamia. But shortly thereafter, around 3000, is when the Phoenicians appeared upon the scene. Now, the Phoenicians are, of course, a Semitic people, okay, just like the, well, they were what they call proto-Semites. So you could say that the Phoenicians were the first Jews per se. Uh, Egypt, of course, was a major power up until about 2400. They continued to be a major power, but the Akkadians, you know, who we also mostly closely associate with Canaan, they came into power about oh, the middle of the sometime about 24, the middle of 24, 2300 BC. Now, <clears throat> shortly after that was Nimrod, okay? And he's the guy that supposedly built the Tower of Babel. So there you go. Now, the Arameans, who are going to be very, very important, they came a little bit after that. The Aramean language, of course, is the language of Christ. And I obviously, the first thing I'm thinking is there's a connection between the Arameans and the Armenians. And we want to explore that because, of course, the Armenians are going to become a big part of the subject matter here, probably, especially around World War One. Now, uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh was written around 2100 B.C. And this is the first time anybody really talked about the flood, supposedly. That was the first time. Uh, around 2000, the period of 2000 to 1700 BC, this was what they call the Amorite period or the Canaanite period, and this is mostly what we associate with the Hittites. So these are the guys now, the Hittites, this group is now ruling all of what we would call the, you know, Fertile Crescent, and this includes the little part along the edge of the Mediterranean that everyone is so excited about. Okay, the Levant. Egypt controlled it most of the time, but uh, the Hittites, basically, they controlled it during this period of time. Uh, <clears throat> now, the second time, of course, that there was a flood story came out, came out in about 1600. And this, of course, was associated with the Babylonians, but let's see what else happened here. In 1400, we have a period where Egypt was controlling all of the Levant, not necessarily the rest of the Mesopotamia, but they were controlling everything around the Nile all the way up into Israel and the parts that we would call Lebanon, all the way up there, base of Turkey. <clears throat> this was also what we call, uh, when the Babylonians were in their part, which was the Mesopotamia, you know, most of the rivers right there, they were called Kassite Babylonians, K-A-S-S-I-T-E. You might want to take notes, people. This is important because the Kassites, Babylonians, basically became part of the Jewish tribes somewhere along the line. So this is an interesting thing because we're tracing the pagan cultures and how they work their way into these, you know, tribes. And one of the most important things that we want to show is that the gods of these tribes, the gods from the very, very early age, kept getting passed down the line. And when you see the Phoenicians, who we showed, the Phoenicians came around very early on, somewhere some shortly after the flood. They were the first ones to start using this Baal-El character, who we're going to describe who Baal-El really is. 
but we associate Baal-el with the Babylonians, but of course it was started well before the Babylonians by the Phoenicians, and remember the Phoenicians are the proto-Semites, so it's in there already. Now during this period of time, or shortly thereafter this period of time, around 1300 BC, we had Exodus, and obviously before Exodus we had Abraham. Now we'll just discuss Abraham really quick because when Abraham started his journey, he started almost at the mouth of the Red Sea and worked his way all up the rivers, down the other side into the Levant, down into the Nile Valley. That's how he got to Egypt. So in other words, before the Egypt being and the Nile being on the, the right side, he started the furthest point of the Fertile Crescent on the left, went up all the way up, all the way back down. Now, here's the thing I'm just going to throw out there, and of course, this is just me, but I'm going to throw it out there. We know when Abraham got into Egypt, the first thing he did is started pimping his wife out to the pharaoh. I suspect that the whole time he was traveling through the entire Fertile Crescent, he was probably pimping her out the entire trip. Something to consider. <clears throat> I should also mention, uh, just to go back a little bit, I, I know I didn't cover this, but, but during the period of, say, 2400 back to the flood, the Egyptians were really the guys in control. And it's probably a good thing to remember because I suspect that the Egyptians are definitely go back pre-flood. And the other thing is, is that a lot of what we go by historically is based on these written languages. And, of course, the Phoenicians were supposedly the ones that developed the first true language. But we don't really think about books being written until the Epic of Gilgamesh being the oldest book. But the point is, is that the Egyptians, of course, they didn't do any of that. They used pictograms. So we should probably, if we really wanted to know what happened, we should probably go back and see what the... Egyptians had to say about this stuff. And I'm going to try not to waste too much time because I know I'm kind of skipping and I'm, I'm losing a lot of stuff. But anyway, as I said, Exodus happened around 1300 and <laughs> apparently went to about 1200, okay, which is when that started. Now, King David... You had Saul, of course, before David, but King David's life didn't really start till about 1000 B.C. And during that time, most of that territory really was uh, Phoenicia, okay, prior up until that time. And this, of course, is, uh, well, that was, is Lebanon today. But <clears throat> that was the most developed area. And I should mention really quick about the Phoenicians, uh, the Phoenicians are also the people responsible for Carthage. And the, what they did, and the reason why they kind of fell apart the way they did is because they never had a central capital. What they did do is they had a very good navy, and they took that navy and they sailed all up and down the Mediterranean, and they had ports all over the place, as far north or as far west as Gibraltar, that entire area over there in Spain. So... This is important because we're going to show that the Jewish people spread to Europe through this connection that they had with the Phoenicians. In other words, 
King David, King Saul, King Solomon never had a navy. But they did have the Canaanite believing, worshipping, religion worshipping Phoenicians in the area that was today Lebanon, right next to them. The whole time during the kingdom of David and the kingdom of Solomon, the area that we know as Lebanon was Phoenician territory. And from there it sailed to all the other Phoenician cities, including Carthage, throughout the Mediterranean. And this is probably the earliest way that the Jews settled in Spain and brought the Sephardic faith to Spain, as well as the other capitals, Italy, Greece, etc., and, and Northern Africa. So that's very important. And that we see that carried on way up until the time of uh, King David. Uh, now, the temple was built, I said, in roughly 1000 AD. David started around there, 1000, I'm sorry, BC. But Israel split. Solomon came around shortly after that. He came around just about 957 BC. And it split roughly, the country split in two. Looks like about 850 BC. All right. Now, of course, when it split in two, Judah was on the top, or no, Israel was on the top, which was the largest portion, and this is where Solomon created the, his, his kingdom and his heirs set up their kingdoms. But <clears throat> Judah was on the bottom. And this is important, of course, because Assyria and Babylon were coming into power. Now, the first temple fell when, when Judah was conquered by the Babylonians, it looks like the first temple was destroyed just before 500 B.C., so it was about 520 B.C. It's interesting because Xerxes was... Uh, a big deal about those time and Leonidas and the Greeks were pretty pretty big but that was when the first temple was destroyed now Alexander didn't come around until about 350 BC okay we're moving up there but this whole time the uh, Judeans and the well of course the Assyrians had conquered the, the top part shortly thereafter it's easy to skip over because it happened one after the other yeah uh, there was only about 20, 30 years difference between when the Babylonians destroyed Judah and the Assyrians destroyed Israel. But it's important because for a couple reasons, during the period of time that the Judeans were in Babylon, they picked up a lot of those nasty Babylonian habits. Now, it's not like they didn't have exposure to that anyway, because they were all right next door to Lebanon, and they were all right next door to the Amalekite areas, and those areas that were celebrating all these strange ideas. But for sure, we know the Babylonians were doing some nasty stuff, and they, make such, they say so many terrible things about the Canaanites, and yet, here you have Lebanon, or here you have this Phoenician empire, which they were dependent on, that were also Canaanite worshippers. Now, I suspect what happened was that they made, and I think that David and 
Solomon probably made the Phoenicians pay tribute. That's probably how the Phoenicians got away with it. But I think the Phoenicians were like their dirty little secret, especially for Solomon. <clears throat> anyway, so the temple was destroyed. All the stuff's going on. And it wasn't until almost the time of Christ that the temple was rebuilt. But before that, we had what we called the uh, Diaspora, which is where a lot of the Jews were, were uh, displaced. So the Babylonian conquest and the Assyrian conquest caused these Jews to vacate many of them because of what was going on. So this, of course, drove a lot of them to uh, the far corners of the world, which in this case would have been Spain, etc. But we also have, uh, what's important to consider is that some of those people leaving during, before and certainly after the fall of the first temple, they had nothing to do with what happened afterwards. They were gone. They were living in another country on the far ends of the world. So when the Middle Ages came along and they started persecuting the Jews in these countries like France and Spain, for the most part, these are people that had been living there since around the time of the fall of the first temple. And they're like, wait a minute, we have nothing to do with that business. We, we weren't anywhere around when Christ was, was taken out. And besides, I was the Pharisees. But anyway, so... And there was another empire that nobody talks about called the Chaldean Empire. And for a little while there, around 600 B.C., they controlled the entire area of the Fertile Crescent again, with the exception of maybe the area of Egypt. And this is kind of interesting because nobody talks about these people, and they were basically controlled everything between the time the Assyrians controlled everything and the time that the Babylonians controlled everything. Now, obviously anybody that was harassed or bullied by the Babylonians and the Assyrians were probably going to have an ancient grudge, as well as anybody that tangles with any of these other tribes, like the Amalekites. Well, <clears throat> This is Iraq and this is Syria, and you're going to see that major cities of Syria and Iraq, like Aleppo and Mosul, again and again and again, Damascus, will be tortured and crushed in the site of genocide and massacre. And this will all be done usually to kill Christians, which is going to be a reoccurring thing. I'm not going to say they're the only ones being killed, but this was the groups that we find on the losing end for the most part throughout history, like the Armenians, for the most part were Christian. So we're going to follow this because this is very important when we get to our Nazi history. Uh, Rome came along, of course, the time the Second Temple fell. The Second Temple only lasted from about, oh, just a little bit before Christ was born, maybe 10 years, and was destroyed. He was built by King Herod, of course, and it was destroyed roughly, oh, 80 years later, 80 AD, I believe. So it was like, what, maybe 100 years it lasted, the second temple, temple lasted. Now, Rome, of course, only lasted until about 450 
AD, and you'll have to uh, correct me if I'm wrong, and of course the Byzantine Empire and the Holy Roman Empire and all that happened. And then the Holy Land, of course, by this time in much of the world in the near vicinity was being controlled by the caliphate. Of course, this is when the when Muhammad came along. But the point of looking at this timeline, if we go back to, say, the time of the flood all the way up to the time of, uh, well, you know, midway through A.D., we see that the kingdom of David and the kingdom of, of Solomon only lasted here, let's see, 1,000 to barely 800, okay? So we're talking about 800 years. Now this is 800 years out of 5,000 roughly so far. And during that 5,000 years, we've seen whole civilizations, whole empires come and go that have occupied this area and have left their trace and their roots and their genetic material. And yet, David only occupied so much area. He conquered some territories, but they were not really controlled by him. He were, they were just conquered. Solomon, of course, he conquered a little bit more. He went a little bit further north, but the entire kingdom was only a small section of the Levant. It wasn't anything close to the entire Fertile Crescent that was typically owned by any one of these great civilizations at any given time during this period of thousands of years. It was just this one little area. Now, I also wanted to mention that when all these civilizations were, were forming, coming and going, fighting each other, stealing each other's territory, there were the nomads that lived in the desert of the Sinai. These guys were your Semites, okay? They were nomads. They lived in tents. They raised sheep, that kind of thing. These were the so-called chosen people. All right. Now, blood libel, of course, is something that I am going to have to talk about, but I, I want to get this out of the way. There's a whole bunch of stuff that I need to get out of the way, and I know it's not going to be in order, but I kind of, kind of have to throw it to you the way I was dealing with. But, but the, one of the biggest issues with the so-called persecution—I'm sorry—persecution of the Jews for whatever reason, the world, the Jewish world post-Solomon, was this concept of blood libel. Now, blood libel, of course, meaning basically the big lie that the Jews are cursed because of the execution of Jesus, and somehow, because of this, they have to consume the blood of Christians. Now, this, of course, is uh, very close to the basis of Satanism, but at the same time, it's not. It's just one of those things, and it's not even uh, connected to the stuff that was going on prior to the flood, etc., etc. But we have to talk about it because this controversy is the basis for why the Jews were expelled from various different European countries at various times, and why there was hatred and animosity, etc., etc. But before I get into this position of Jews in the world and, and why they were pissing off so many people, you have to understand advanced cultures, and you have to understand that the kingdom of David and the kingdom of Solomon 
was a very advanced culture. And they had technological advances and cultural advances, advances beyond the rest of the world at the time. So when they had their freedom again, they were basically able to go out in the world and use this advanced knowledge to their benefit to make a buck. And there was the reason why so many of them jumped on the boat and cruised all over the world with the Phoenicians. It wasn't because they were trying to get away all the time. A lot of time it was because they were trying to make a buck. And the reason is, is because they learned this from the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians were the businessmen. That's why they sailed their boats all over the world, because they were setting up business and barter and trade. And this is where that comes from. Remember, the Phoenicians are a proto-Semitic people to begin with. So this is where this wheeling and dealing carpetbagger type thing comes from. So yes, anytime something happened in the world, there was a crisis or some upheaval, the Jews would be there to take advantage of the situation. That's what they did. They were all about making a buck. So that's why they were so scattered about. But the earliest uh, examples of this whole blood libel thing was back in about 460 BC, where a Greek philosopher who was also very well known for his development of the atomic theory said that every seven years the Jews had to capture a stranger, bring him to the temple, and sacrifice him, cutting his flesh to bits. So uh, this comes out of a 10th century Byzantine encyclopedia. Someone else who was probably very anti-Jew around 30 BC said that the, there was a prophecy. And this, the prophecy said that killing a Christian child each year would ensure the return of the Jews to the Holy Land. And this is because supposedly during the time of the crucifixion when Pontius Pilate was uh, asking the Jews what he should do with Jesus, they said that one of the things they said was, His blood be upon us. So, in around 1260 or so, there was a Jewish prophet, and he tried to tell them that only the blood of Christ would redeem them, would save them from this sin of, of having put Jesus uh, to death. But they misinterpreted that, supposedly, because he said, solo sanguine, Christo, but they interpreted it as solo sangre, sangre Cristiano. So in other words, it went from the blood of Christ to the blood of Christians. The rumor of the blood sacrifice is that they would take the blood, they would collect it, and of course it had to come from a Christian, preferably a devout Christian child, and they would use it to make their crackers, their matzos. This was the basis of the blood thing. They would they would knead this into the bread. And it's interesting because that that this would be a, a story because apparently some cultures would, would execute an enemy, they would burn the enemy down into whatever ashes, they would knead those ashes into bread and eat them. So so there is some ancient ancient basis to this. And here's the other thing about these uh, so-called blood libel cases. They've been going on, obviously, since B.C. A.D. when people started writing about it, but they never really stopped. They've been going on into even modern times. The most recent one is, was in the 40s, I think. But they've always been spectacular cases, and they usually involve 
a child being found either in the woods or the river or the back closet of a rabbi, and this child will be dead, and the child will have a bunch of punctures in the body. And the punctures, of course, are for many reasons, not just for extracting blood, but as we know now, because everybody knows about adrenochrome, and because we know about Louche, we know that there is adrenochrome, there is something in that blood. There is a high, there is something that they want. And when I say they, of course, I'm just talking about the individuals that did this. I'm not talking about entire cultures. But what I always found fascinating, even though there were so many of these blood libel cases, that they they never documented the wounds on all these children. But I think, I think there was... Uh, a great effort to cover this stuff up. Now, there was a... In Syria, of course, there we go again, Damascus, there was a father, a priest, who I think was a monk, but anyway, him and his assistant, his interpreter, went apparently to the home of one of, their, one of his friends, and he was killed. And there were a couple rabbis there. Now... This was in modern times. This was, I think, 1946 or something when this happened. But the story is that the rabbis took the blood and, and took off. Now, this was a very sensational story when it happened. It was a big deal. The Arab world was a buzz about this. Uh, <clears throat> it happened in about, oh, let's see, when did it happen? 1840. 1840 is when this... Uh, the sacrifice took place, the ritual sacrifice. But in 1844, there was a guy who was the son of the head rabbi of Paris. His name was David Paul Drock, and he was a convert. He converted, and he said a Catholic priest in Damascus was ritually killed and the murder covered up by the powerful Jews in Europe. He said that in 1844. One of the most famous of these executions that everybody still talks about is uh, Simon of Trent. And it's funny because there was a painting of Simon of Trent just done recently, and already Wikipedia is trying to cover it up. But Simon of Trent was actually canonized, and I think he was removed from that around, oh, 1965. But... In the remainder of the 19th century and in the 20th century, there were many cases of blood libel also in the Ottoman lands. And it's been reported that, though, you know, of course, that the Jews, and again, I don't want to use the word Jews because we'll explain that later, but they could always count on the Ottoman authorities and British, Prussian, and Austrian higher-ups to protect them. The Syrian defense minister in 1983 said they had a black hatred against all humans and religions. Uh, we're going to talk about the Khazars. And we have to talk about the Khazars, of course, because these are the guys that are supposedly the took over from the kingdom of Solomon. They're the people that were released by the Syrians and went north. And, of course, the kingdom of Solomon was the one that maintained the most of its, uh, well, let's just say Canaanite satanic influence because of the stuff Solomon was involved in. But we should mention that uh, the Khazars, of course, are definitely on the map, and they, they had quite a large 
area that they controlled. They were eventually defeated, of course, by the Kiev Rus, who were mostly Viking, Slavic, Finnish types, also known as the Bar Varangians. Okay, but they were that's the people that defeated them and, fo and formed the modern day Russia. But Khazaria lasted from about 650. A.D. to 965 A.D., and they were definitely a, buzz, a buffer state uh, between the Byzantine Empire and everybody else. So they had to adopt religions that would put them into a situation that would be helpful to protect them from uh, the Catholics on one side, the Muslims on the other. They decided to be to be to adopt Judaism as their official language. I think King Bulgar was the one that did it would be the safest thing to do. But the thing is, is that the reality was that they had quite a few religions. They never dropped any of these religions. They were, they were a group of a large group of people. And if you look at some of the races of people or groups of uh, ethnic groups that come from the Khazars directly, you've got the uh, Sabotniks, the Karaites, there's those guys again, Turkish-Jewish, the Krimchaks, Crimean-Jewish, the Kumyaks, Dagestan Chechens, the Bukharan, the Persian Jews, you got the Kazakhs, the Hungarians, the Cossacks, and the Tartars. These are all people connected directly to the Khazars. So right away, there again, there's that bloodline. In, in 800 AD, the coinage of the realm said Moses on it. Now, also, it should be noted that when the when the Islamic world was taking its toll, and when the the Byzantine Empire was taking its toll, all the Jews from those empires also migrated to the freedom of the pagan Khazar region. One of the religions of the Khazars, not the only religion, is something called Tengrism. Tengrism is a Turco-Mongolic religion. It was probably the religion of Genghis Khan. So we don't talk about the influence of Genghis Khan, but it's definitely there. They believed in a sky god called Tengi. They're at one time polytheist and monotheist, but the Turks were definitely still practicing this religion. Originally, in the old days, human sacrifice was involved, probably up to the 15th century. These people became the Turkmen, the Balkans. They became the most of Antolia. There's a big legend, of course, when you uh, they say that when you slay a warrior, one of your warriors is, would get slain. That you would have to slay as many of their warriors on top of on top of your the body of your comrade. And this, of course, was also the source of the rumor that they did human sacrifice. But the rumor is also that the Ottoman Turks, and I know you guys don't want to hear this stuff because it's probably just a malicious lie, were doing human sacrifice up until. 1293-1361. They like to believe in soothsayers, omens, magic swords, reading entrails, bone scraping. They also believed in the tree of life, which is interesting because that's a major tenet of one of the big religions we're going to talk about. The, uh, you know, the guys, the Chabad guys, Trump's religion. And here's one of those big things that I did wrong. And that was the Templars and the Jesuits. I told everybody that the Jesuits came before the Templars and they had created the Templars. Wrong! It's important to get these times right. This is important, of course, 
because this has a lot to do, once again, with the formation of the Nazi ideology, Zionist ideology, nationalism, and socialism. National socialism is a big deal. People associate Nazism with national socialism, socialism, and they associate Zionism with socialist Zionism. Well, guess what? Zionism also means nationalism. So guess what? National socialism, socialist uh, nationalism, it's the same thing. Same thing. Now, the Templars, the poor Knights of Christ or the poor brothers of Christ, the poor brothers, whatever, also the Knights of the Temple of Solomon. Well, I don't know why they decided they needed to highlight that. But basically, it was started by a small group, just one single person, primarily a guy named Hugh de Payens, who was French, of course, but back in those days, French and Spanish was kind of closely linked together. But he was also known as Hugh of Champagne. This is important because this guy has a very close connection to Gavin Newsom and the House of Capet. Now, this guy and a bunch of his compadres traveled in 1120 to meet with King Baldwin II of Jerusalem. Now, bear in mind, King Baldwin II is not the Pope. We could talk about King Baldwin I, but first of all, this was a little well into the, the campaign already of the Crusades. But King Baldwin was one of the guys that set himself up as King of Jerusalem, and he practically felt that he had Pope power. So he basically granted an order to this guy, which they know as the Knight Templars. That's where it started. Now, you should bear in mind, of course, that the Templars were pirates. They plundered. Baldwin I was very well known for this. They built ships. They sailed up and down the coast of Africa and the Indian Sea, and they plundered. Templars took a lot of oaths. One of them was not to have children, and they had a lot of gay rights, and they were, of course, put to death because of their belief in Baphomet, etc., etc., which, of course, was a male fertility god. But uh, let's see, what do I want to say about the, the Baldwin I? Uh, Baldwin I was a cousin. He was the Count of Edessa, but that's how he became Baldwin II. But they say he was very greedy. He loved money. Now, it was King Philip or Pope Clement V that dissolved the Templars. And, of course, this was happened on a Friday the 13th, October 1307. At the same time, roughly about 1306, interestingly enough, Philip expelled all the Jews from France. And then he wiped out the Templars. And here's the thing that he said. He said they were a state within a state. But you know what? History doesn't link the two groups together, and yet, one was sent out before the other. I thought that was kind of interesting. Now, the big mistake I made, of course, was in the dates of when the Templars were founded and the Jesuits were founded. And the Jesuits are extremely important because of their effect all over the world and effect on modern society and their continued effect on the modern society because, hey, guess what? We have a Jesuit Pope. Well, let's talk about what the Jesuits are. Now, first of all, bear in mind, because of the blood rituals, which we'll probably talk about more, and because of the fact that uh, Jews were very wealthy and they did a lot of things with money and people were jealous, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, they were more developed than everyone else, uh, there was a lot of animosity. So throughout the years in, in Europe, they were being persecuted. And when this happened, often they would either be slaughtered 
they would be expelled or they would be forced to convert and be baptized and become Christian, Catholic, uh, something of this nature, usually Catholic. And what happened was this caused many of these people, of course, to accept this religion, to accept the baptism, but they never truly accepted the religion. They would practice their faith behind closed doors. Now, the co- what happened because of this was this started the practice of doing everything in the dark, doing everything behind closed doors. This whole business with trying to drive something underground is a theme. We'll show that with the Templars and with the Hell, with, when, when Nimrod was executed, his followers, who supposedly started the occult, were driven underground. So anytime you have a group like this being persecuted, the effect is to drive them underground. And this is not necessarily because it's bad, but sometimes driving a group underground allows, allows for negative influences to operate within the group. This will be a reoccurring theme. Now, the Templars were founded uh, August 5th. 1534 by a guy named Ignatius Loyola, who was basically born 1491 from a Basque family in Spain, which is basically French, Spain, Catalonia, Barcelona, and he area, and he was a sixth-generation Basque, but he was also a convert or a converso, and there were a lot of effort was put into trying to prove that he was. Now, one of the key things that the Jesuits did supposedly was they would work the con- for the conversion of Muslims, which is interesting. But they were priests and they were also brothers, which means that some of them could marry or could retain wives that they had prior to their ordination. Around the time of 1492, Ferdinand and Isabella, Isabella reunited Spain. And by July 30th of 1492, there were no Jews left in Spain which means they either had to get on a boat and go to Morocco or elsewhere, or they had to get baptized. Now, as we know, for a large portion of the time, Spain was run by, or the whole lower portion of Spain was run by the Muslims. And, of course, the Muslims made life a little bit easier for the Jews. But as soon as they got kicked out of the country and the Catholics took over and reunited the country, the first thing they did was come down on the Jews. One of the things that I should mention here is that, uh, well, let's just say this. Most of the Jews, the Sephardic Jews that were kicked out of Spain, went to Holland, North Africa, Turkey, and Italy. Some of them went to Mexico, of course, also. The thing about the uh, Jesuits is that they like to screw around with the women. There's a lot of scandals involving Jesuits where they had scandalous affairs with women. And even Ignatius Loyola had to appear before the Inquisition because of his female followers and him being arrested after a scandal, probably after a you know extra long confession. But he did that. They all did that. They still do. There's this morality, undergoing morality thing. I'm going to explain this whole business with this hating of morality. He was made a saint in 1922 by Pope Pius XII, he was made the patron saint of soldiers. Now, Pope Pius is interesting because this is the same guy that made the Concord with Nazi Germany of non-intervention. Okay, now Catholics hated Hitler. But they also expelled the Jews. So Hitler divided all of them. 
a little bit more about the Jesuits. In here's some quotations. In 1551, there was a monk, and he basically said, and he said this to his congregation. He says, "But there is a f new fraternity of late sprung up, who call themselves Jesuits, will, which will deceive many who are much after the scribes and Pharisees' manner. Among the Jews, they shall strive to abolish the truth, and shall come very near to it, for these sorts will." turn themselves into several forms. With heathens, they will be heathens. With atheists, they will be atheists. With Jews, they will be Jews. And with reformers, they will be reformers. Basically, they're, they're chameleons. He says, purposely, to know your intentions in the minds and hearts, these shall spread all over the world and shall be admitted into the councils of princes who shall never be wiser, charming them, making them reveal their hearts, they will fall from God due to their winking at their sins. They shall become odious to all nations, worse than Jews. Another quote is, if members of the society continue as they have begun, God grant that the time may not come when kings wish to resist them but will not have the means of doing so. So everybody knew what these guys were. Now, Spain and France both believed that the Jesuits were a shadow government. One of the things the Jesuits did, of course, with the colonies is they established settlements in the New World. We all know about those settlements. But the thing that they did was they used these settlements to assimilate the native people outside of European colonies for guerrilla warfare. They were a secret society bent on world domination. <laughs> in 1596, they were accused of frequent unnecessary visits to single women for confession, leading to seduction, scandalously long confessions of women in church. So obviously, this is where a lot of the satanic vice came from. And I want to give you a little bit of uh, information about, I'm going to reference Albert Pike here. There's a quote from Albert Pike. This is something that he said. Now, Albert Pike, of course, is the uh, Southern Jew who started the KKK and probably also the same man that wrote the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion. But in 1871, Albert Pike says, Hugh de Payans, the guy that started the Templars, himself had not that keen and far-sighted an intellect, nor that grandiose of purpose, which afterward distinguished the military founder of another soldiery that had been come formidable to kings. He's talking about the Jesuits in Loyola. The Templars were unintelligent and therefore an unsuccessful Jesuit. And then he says 800 degrees were invented. He's talking about Masonic degrees now. Infidelity and even Jesuitry were taught under the mask of masonry. Now here is our first clue that this religion, this underground desire to take over the world was integrated into the masons. Before then the masons were nothing more than a group of masons, stonecutters. He also references Demolay, the words of Demolay. And he says that 
While Demolay was in jail prior to his execution, Demolay, of course, was the last official master mason that was burned to death at the stake on Friday the 13th. But he said that in his jail cell, he was able to create the occult, hermetic orders, and Scottish masonry. Now, this is important because you're going to see Scottish come up a few times, especially with Donald Trump's family. But he set up four lodges or metropolitans. The east one was in Naples. The west one was in Edinburgh, Scotland. And then Stockholm was the north and Paris was the south. Oh, I'm going to dive right into Sabatai, Shabbatai Zevi, the first Jewish messiah. And again, the order of the stuff I'm going to give you is probably not in order, but we're just going to dive through it as quick as I can. Now, Zevi, Sabatai, he had, was on June 6th or 18th, 1660, because of that date, the June being the sixth month, 18 being three times six, and 1,666, he decided he was the first Messiah. Okay, obviously there's a little bit of satanic influence with that thing. But his big thing was blaspheming the Torah. He said that all 216 mitzvahs, mitzvahs were suddenly now sins. He thought that Purim was a was a, a thing, a time for extinguishing the light, where they had would have orgies and they would swap blood. Okay, that you know swap blood. All right, that means what it sounds like. He declared himself the Messiah. He said they were allowed to do anything they want. Now here's the thing. Here's one of his words. He, this is one of the Sabbatean prayers. He started this cult called the Sabbateanism, but one of their prayers was, "Blessed be he." that permits the forbidden. So his whole concept was redemption through sin. Now, for a short period of time, this became very popular with a lot of Jews. Not all Jews, but a bunch of Jews. They thought this was great. And the reason why is because he said because he was the Messiah, suddenly you didn't have to fast, you didn't have to follow all these moral laws. The laws were removed. This is the beginning, and this is an important word. Write this down. Antinomianism, A-N-T-I-N-O-M-I-A-N-I-S-M. Antinomianism is basically a secular way of saying Satanism. You are obligated to transgress as many moral boundaries as possible. That's what he preached. After this guy came another guy called Frank. Now, here's the thing. Shabbatai Zevi was Sephardic. Uh, I'm not sure where he died. I think he might have died in Bulgaria. But the point is, is that this does not mean that all Sephardic Jews are bad. This idiot was a nutcase. And if you ask any Sephardic Jew, I know they'll tell you he was an asshole. But he made them all look bad because he ran around and said, it's okay, let's have orgies. Let's kill people. Let's kill Christians. All that stuff. Anyway... He was also considered very anti-Talmudic, which is very important. Now, Jacob Frank was a Turkish Jew, but he was also convinced that he was the second Messiah. Now, one of the things that Frank did, besides start Frankism, is... Uh, he, he was very big on starting this trend of getting converts to pretend they were something else. So he had convinced the local bishop 
that he and his people were anti-Talmud. Now, but before I mention this, I should go back to Zevi. One of the biggest problems with Zevi was that he basically was told by the uh, Turkey in Turkey in 1666. He was demanded. This is right after he called himself Messiah and got all these people excited. The the Muslim the caliphate or whatever the head dude. He said that uh, he had to convert. He had become Muslim. So Zevi and 300 of his followers both became Muslim. And they basically, of course, lived in Turkey. Now, this is important because this is the birth of the John Donmeh Jews in Turkey. And I know that the Jews that, that have Donma in the, what they were responsible for with the young Turks and Ataturk, etc., they're going to say this is not, this is not good. But these were people who were anti-morals, anti-religion, anti-establishment of the institutions of the, the real God. They believed that by destroying the institutions and the religion of the so-called fake God, only through this could their real God be revealed. And of course, their real God is Satan. But these guys were, they hated Jews. They were very secular. Now, most Zionists, real Zionists, are Sabbatean. And I've, people have asked me, they said, are Zionists Frankists? No, not all Zionists are Frankists. One of the best ways to tell them apart, of course, is there's the Western and the Eastern Zionists. Western Zionists tend to be more religion-oriented and less nationalist. Eastern Zionists... They're more nationalists. Why? Because they're from Eastern Europe. They are Khazar. They want that territory back. The ones in the West, they don't have that connection. And I'll say right now, a nationalistic feeling or a Zionist nationalistic feeling is similar to if you're Catholic, no matter where you're living on earth, and you pledge allegiance, you only recognize the Vatican and whatever is the considered the base of your religion, the historical territory of your religion, as your nationality. It's the exact same thing. And obviously, if you're whatever religion, you probably think that's silly. But that's where the line between nationalism and religion gets blurred. And during the early post-flood era nationalism was the big thing but as civilizations develop they develop religion and religion is where morals come from and people think that their religion has laws that are passed down from god that tell them what to do and as people get away from religion they go into moral feelings because they want to do what's right anyway not because religion tells them to do so this way of thinking is very important because this is where Protestantism comes from. This is where the Satanism comes from. This is where this Frankism comes from. I'm not saying it's all evil, but it starts out as a desire to rebel and go against a church power. But what the Satanists are doing is they're saying that if you take away the church power, you also must take away the moral vestiges of the church power. This is why it's so important that they violate moral norms. So anyway, so one of the main things that they did was they controlled minds with sex. Sex. That was a very big part of this antinomianism. Break rules, have sex. Now, 
as I said, Jacob Frank only believed that the true God could only be revealed through the destruction of society, religious structures of the false God. Now, some people ask, what does this have to do with Christianity? One of the things that Christianity believes is that we have to depend on a Savior to come and take us. In other words, that's suggesting that the world that we're living in, the reality that we're in right now, is controlled by evil, and only through the intervention and salvation of a Savior can we fix it. That's, that's the basis of Christianity. There's a lot of roots in this. Now, Jesus, of course, once said to the Pharisees, when they questioned him about him working on the Sabbath, preaching, whatever he was doing, he said that Sabbath is made for man, not man made for Sabbath. A lot of people suggest that because of this, Jesus was anti-law or anti-religion. But no, Jesus was very pro-morals. He was also very service to others. Service to others versus service to self is very important with respect to this antimonianism because when you talk about, say, Protestantism, you will see that Protestantism believes that it's through faith that they are saved, not through good works like serving others. They believe that I believe that Jesus will save me because I believe that Jesus will save me. That's the difference, other than a service-to-self entity that will realize that salvation only comes from being at least 51% service to others. Now, Frank, in about 1756, was busted doing an orgy ritual in Poland. Okay, this is after he said he was Christian. Now, the rabbis, who really didn't like this guy anyway, said that the Christians should condemn him. Now, instead, Frank turned around, he went to the uh, Christian, the bishops, and he said that, hey, wait a minute, I'm anti-Talmud. Remember, I'm Christian. Don't forget about that. And, and, the, and the bishops are going, that's right. He's our friend. He doesn't like those Jews. And he told them that the Jews, that the Talmud teaches the Jews to need Christian blood. And that those that believe in the Talmud would use it. So here he was projecting. This is one of the things they do. In 1759, he was baptized. Now here's something that they say about Frankism, and that is the way of Esau, or the way of life, immortality, tree of life, is the destruction of institutions, the denial of the world of creation to destroy the visible universe. Okay? Come on. What more do you need? This is Satanism. It's the visible universe. They hate creation. They don't just hate humans. They hate creation. In 1785, Frank ran out of money. What did he do? In 1786, he moved to Frankfurt, the home of Meyer Amst Rothschild, the guy that ran the bank of Germany, okay? The Rothschild family. He was the guy. He had all the money. This is where all the money came from. Another guy came in the picture named Adam Weishaupt, German philosopher. You may have heard of him because he's the guy that started the Illuminati. The reality is, is that Frank Rothschild Weishaupt got together and started the Illuminati with Rothschild money based on Frankist principles. 
very, very important. Frank didn't live much longer. He only he died something like 1791. But Rosshopped, but what did he do? He went and joined the Masons. Now, bear in mind, he had all the money in the world practically behind him. The Bank of Germany, whatever it was at the time, Rothschild Bank, Worldwide Bank, and he basically took over the Masons. So up until this point, the Masons were not an evil, wicked, satanic organization because basically these guys got together and said, what are we going to do? Every time we try to institute this Frankism and stuff, we get run underground, we get in trouble, we get thrown in jail. So they said, we got to come up with a place that's got lodges already built all over the world, something that we can infiltrate and take over and institute our secret societies. Now, bear in mind, when the Jesuits were created, one of the big things that they said they were going to do was root out the Masons. They think, oh my gosh, the Masons must be terrible. But no, once again, by turning the Masons evil, by saying they're evil, they drove them underground so that the forces of evil could take over. Thank you very much. That's what they did. That is how the Masons became associated with the Illuminati, etc., etc. It was a takeover. This, the Illuminati, of course, was even banned before the French Revolution. Okay, and before the French Revolution, of course, there was a horseman who fell off his horse, and they found his satchel. And inside the satchel were tenants, and basically, it was about the plans of the Masonic Lodge to cause all the terrible things. You know that. Let me see. What was it? Protocols of Learned Elders of Zion, I think, might have been anyway. But the point is, is that around this time, Germany was completely Sabbatean. All the money in Germany was being controlled by Rothschilds. They controlled the whole country. And they didn't just control the whole country because you're going to find out that all this Rothschild money scattered all over Europe, all these principalities, all the money that they controlled through their so-called court Jews, et cetera, et cetera, or court factors, basically was where all the money in the United States come from, all the, all the research, all the exploration, hell, the funding for... Columbus was Templar. The big red flags on t on the on the ships of the Santa Maria, the Nina, and the Pinta were Templar flags. The navigators on the, that had the cartographers that had the maps on the ships for Columbus, they were Templars. They knew what they were doing. They're coming here to the New World to prophetize, to set up their situation, and to also find entrances to the Middle Earth, like we've talked about before. But Anyway, Turkey, of course, Germany, Austria, all these areas were completely taken over by this group at this time. Germany, of course, exported this thinking to London. From London, it was exported to America. About this time, of course, this is where John Engels, where Engels, Marx, etc., all this stuff came along. Now, Rothschild, because he basically, those people had all the money in the world, they sent their agents to the United States. They sent John Astor, Schiff, Warburg. They 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 hooked up. They took they hooked up the Rockefellers, the Carnegies, the Harrimans, all these guys. All that money that was basically used to construct the United States as we know it today. This was Rothschild money. We will talk about that a little bit more. But in 1970s, the Sabbateans of English decided of England decided that they were the British Israelites. This is interesting. <clears throat> this is very important because they're very big in the government, in the country. One of the founders that we associate with Zionism, a guy named Herzl. 
H-E-R-C-E-L, Theodore. <clears throat> now, Herzl was a Zionist, but he was not necessarily a Sabbatean. He really wasn't a bad man. He was capable of great evil to achieve his goal, but at the same time, he was not a bloodthirsty Sabbatean. But he said, and he said this, of course, in front of the, the one of the, the original Zionist Congress, but he said that it was essential for the suffering of Jews to become worse than this, because this will assist our plans. I have an excellent idea. I shall induce anti-Semites to reduce, to liquidate Jewish wealth, and the anti-Semites will assist us, thereby in that they will strengthen the persecution and oppression of the Jews. The anti-Semites will be our best friends. Why is this? Is because in Germany, Many, many Jews controlled the country, and there was great wealth, of course. But here's the thing. They practiced the Jewish religion. They were religious Jews. They were not Zionist in that they didn't care about Israel. They didn't think Israel as their home country. Their home country was where they lived after all that time. They were Germans. So, basically, what that means... And what we're going to show is as early as this, and you'll see that the people that came after Herzl worked closely with the Nazis. But before there could be World War II and the Nazis as we know them, there had to be World War I and the Ottoman Empire and the Armenian Genocide, which was a dry run for the Holocaust. So we'll get there. But here's the thing about Herzl. Again, as I said, he was not Sabbatean. I should mention that Woodrow Wilson restricted the immigration of Jews to the USA. So as the pressure was being put on Jews, they didn't allow them here. They wanted it hard. Herzl met with the Kaiser Wilhelm in 1898 in Jerusalem, in a church built in Jerusalem that the caliphate had allowed the Kaiser to build. This was the Ottoman Empire, of course, at the time. So the Kaiser had good relations with the Kaiser, with the Ottoman Empire, and they, they allowed them to build a church in Jerusalem. He was very happy about it. So, but when he asked the Kaiser to help him get a homeland for the Jews in Israel, the Kaiser said, no way, because he did not want war with Turkey. They were allies. Now, Herzl, he wasn't stupid. He knew this was true. He knew that millions and millions of people would die if they tried to put this plan to action. But guess what? That did not stop the Zionists. So anyway, after that, he went to London in 1901, and he met with the British Zionists. Remember, they're the ones that think that they're actually, you know, from Israel. And they said that they wanted to be the ones to start Israel, not the Germans. We all know what happened. But anyway, Herzl said, well, you know, why don't we just build it in Africa because you guys got all kinds of land in Africa. You could give us the Congo. You could give us whatever. Of course, you know, as I said by somebody else, they'd probably be uh, Rhodesia or something by now. But basically, uh -uh, that was not going to do because if they did that, they could not get Israel. They could not, these, that would not work with the Sabbatean Frankist plans. Well, you know what? At 44, Herzl went to a sanitarium where he died after two weeks. Everyone said that Herzl worked so hard, that's why he had to go to sanitarium, because it worked as hard. But uh -uh. Herzl was executed, okay? He was executed, and he was replaced by a guy named Chaim Weitzman, who was a butcher, who was Russian-born, Eastern dude. 
1936 at the World Zionist Conference, Chaim Weizmann said perhaps only two million will survive the upcoming Holocaust, but they will be ready for life in Palestine. Okay, he was a labor Zionist. So he's so right there, 1939, 1936, you see that they knew, they planned, they wanted this to happen, they expected it to happen because they knew that this would allow them supposedly to get Palestine. <sighs> but before that, we got to go to uh, 1908 to Ataturk, so called father of the Turks. Now, he was just a uh, one of those Don Mad Jews. But he basically used Masonic lodges to take over Turkey. And the thing that he did was he basically made Turkey a secular country. He removed as much of the influence of the previous uh, religious empire and tried to make it as secular as possible. He's also called the consummator of the Armenian genocide. Now, I know a lot of people don't like this because they don't want to believe it. But here's the thing about the Armenian Genocide. Uh, the Armenians have been moved and kicked and bashed and tossed back and forth. And you have to understand that these are people that go back very, 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 very far back. In fact, they go back to the flood. They go back. They're probably some of the closest relatives that we could really trace back to Noah. But the thing is, is that in Turkey, a lot of the territory, a lot of the cities, a lot of the economy was connected to the Armenians in such a way that they were the Jews of the, the time. They were the rich ones. They were the ones that had the money. They were the ones that were more sophisticated and ran things. And when, when the expulsion and subsequent genocide of the Armenians took place, and of course they weren't the only ones involved, the Turks weren't the only ones involved, what ended up happening was that a lot of the money that they took from these Armenians from selling the property or confiscation or whatever went directly into the coffers of these of the of the new government. And so when a lot of the economy caved in because of this genocide, they were able to take that money and use it to prop things back up. This wasn't the first time this happened, obviously. It's it's been going on since millennia, but and I'm not blaming them. Again, the, the Kurds were also involved. They were they were on one part. Of course, they admitted to it. The when World War One happened and the Ottoman Empire was carved up, of course, it wasn't the secular nation that Ataturk created, but the forces of the Allies confiscated great portions of land, including you know, including the uh, Kurds, or not the Kurds, but the uh, Armenians. So when Ataturk was able to seize power, they basically, one by one, took those lands back as much as they could and rebuilt the country and subsequently took it out on the various uh, <clears throat> nationalities that were apparent on their land. So I don't really want to go into that too much. But I do have to show the connection between the Sabbateans and, and the modern history. One of the groups that was uh, came out of this restructuring of Turkey was what they call Poal Zion, 
this was the Jewish Social Democratic Labor Party in Palestine. Now, this was really a Turkish-based group. Group. What's interesting is that this group is also the same group. It, was, it continued for some time, but Golda Meir was actually a member of this group. So you could say that a lot of the Zionists that were working through the uh, to take the country from the British occupation worked very closely or were, were very historically connected to this young Turk, uh, new, new Turkey that had been set up, which is interesting because they kind of shared the same animosity for the Allies, obviously. Very interesting. And we're going to draw that connection over and over again. During World War II, though, we should mention during World War II, not one Jewish organization helped the Jews except for the Orthodox rabbis, the religious ones. Why, why was this the big deal? What they were trying to do, basically, was wipe out the religious Jews, the ones that were more into the Ju Judaism as a religion and not as a nationalism. They wanted to rebuild the entire society, Hebrew society, Hebrew, uh, you know, descendants of Abraham, they wanted to rebuild that entire society into one that was strictly based on a nationalist feeling based around a area of a country that was only controlled by them for a small period of time based on the amount of time everyone else controlled it. Uh, by 1934, there was, one, there was only one organization, Jewish organization, left in Germany. And that, of course, was these labor Zionist. Before that, 1932, there was up to 250, over 250 organizations representing German Jews. So, of course, this is one of the things that was done by the Nazis or the precursors to the Nazis was to remove all of these organizations except for the one that was the most Nazi. They were only they were allowed they were only allowed to indoctrinate German Jews to adopt Sabbateanism. And only Jews that adopted Sabbateanism were allowed to go to Palestine. There was a transfer agreement between the Jewish agency in, of Jerusalem and the Nazis that allowed seventy thousand to go to Palestine. But they only had to be they they all had to be the Sabbateans. And obviously the purpose of this was to weed out what they considered the weak Jews. So the Zionists did not allow, also did not allow any criticism of the Nazi regime. And the Zionists of, of Jerusalem, remember, so now we can say that the Zionist entity in Palestine was a Nazi German-based, primarily, primarily German organization. Think of Einstein. Okay. Basically, those very same people, not only did they not allow any criticism of the Nazi regime, they rejected any boycott of the Reich. Okay, so that right away should, should, should show you a complicity. <clears throat> so in 1936, Heim Weissman led the only Jewish group in Germany, the Labor Zionist. And he knew the Holocaust was coming. He helped plan it. Now, Churchill was also a Sabbatean Jew, as was Stalin. Woodrow Wilson, of course, well, FDR, we could talk about that. We will, we will talk a little bit about Woodrow Wilson, but uh, I'm going to go back and forth, and I do apologize for it. This is the way it is. But. 
you could say that World War II, as World War One, was a Sabbatean Jew war. Okay, in other words, World War One basically was to conquer the Ottoman Empire so that the new empire could be installed that would be sympathetic to, you know, to setting up the the homeland in Jerusalem. Okay, they had to put the Donmed Jews in power in order for them to have World War Two. Uh, I should say that um, also, um, as far as Jason Frank is concerned, he was a Polish Jew, and he said that the Frankists were based on the Book of Zohara, which was so-called the Book of Light. And there's your your Illuminati again. But the all modern occultism is supposedly based on this. Frankists glorified evil as holy and as a means of salvation. Their priests were called Baal. Shems, B-A-A-L, Shems. Of course, Meyer was a, Amschel Meyer was a Frankist, and the actual red shield that he had on his place of business in Frankfurt was a Frankist symbol. Now, the Star of David that was also on a shield, which has nothing to do, do with the, the Hebrew Empire, was first used by the Khazars. They also used a five-pointed star. This, of course, is mostly associated with the, the cult. But anyway, all those groups formed to form, combined to form the Illuminati. <clears throat> now, here's what's interesting, or one of the things that's interesting, is that I'm looking at the, uh, the Donald Trump family, and I know that his... Uh, great-grandmother is Scottish, but his great-grandfather, of course, on both sides, I mean his mother and father, great-grandmother, both are from a place in the Rhineland. I think it's Kolstadt, something like that. Kolstadt. But anyway, in 1660, his family was at the heart of Satanic Judaism in Frankfurt. All this crap with Frank, etc., and the Illuminati. They were at the heart of that. And child rape and, and all of this type of thing was very much happening, which is interesting when you consider all of the scandals that we talk about today. But the thing is, is that this particular part of the world that the Trump family came from was also the location of one of the first slaughters of Jews in Germany that took place in the Rhineland. It was carried out by what is it, the uh, the crusader, Peter the Hermit, which is interesting because so many converted. So you could probably say that that was the time that his family did the conversion, the real conversion, went underground. Now, of course, Trump and Biden are both surrounded by Jews, but that's irrelevant. But one of Trump's family members was supposedly burned at the stake. Now, again, through Trump, we see tons of the occult, Kabbalah revival. We see deception involving the ritual child, child abuse, meaning them taking credit for trying to stop it. We see Christian Zionists that want to see, well, they want to see Christ in a more racist, tolerant, torture-tolerant light. I mean, have you ever seen a group of people who call themselves Christian that will accept torture and racism as much as they do? Sounds sort of like the Trump fans, doesn't it? Now, 
after the messianic collapse or the collapse of the Frankist Shabbat Zebi, this led to a creation or the birth of a mystical, ecstatic, Chassidic Judaism, which was the birth, of course, of Chabad Lubavitch. So we should also mention that Aleister Crowley is one of the more famous adherents to this. He was very big in the magic sex rituals. He was a Frankist. He was a Zoharist. You should also remember that Grandpa Trump ran whorehouses in the in the the Klondike in the Yukon, and he was actually acting as a Rothschild agent doing so. This money collection. You have to understand, nobody had any money unless it came from the Rothschilds. It all trickled down from the Rothschilds, much as it does today. And here's something else you have to understand. It's not a secret that the family ran whorehouses. Jared Kushner's family ran whorehouses in New Jersey, in New York. Trump's family continued to. That's where they made their money. They didn't make their money on rent. They made it from the prostitutes in those slums that they managed. Well, you can't have prostitution without human trafficking. Okay? So, yes, they made a lot of money in human trafficking. Lots of money. Woodrow Wilson was president of the United States, 1913-1921. He grew up in the Civil War in Georgia, president of Princeton and the governor of New Jersey. He was racist, pro-segregation. He declared war on Germany over sunk ships. He hated Germans and Irish, but he was Scotch-Irish. He created the Federal Reserve, which was financed which financed World War I and World War II. He appointed the first Jew to the Supreme Court, whose name was Brandes. Brandes was not a bad guy. He's one of the best examples of a Zionist who was also not a Frankist. He didn't believe the Jews needed to have a kingdom over there in Israel. He was perfectly happy treating Judaism as a religion. He was also responsible for invading Mexico to chase after Pancho Villa. He, required, he also occupied Nicaragua and started the draft. He sent troops to help the Bolshevists in Russia to fight the whites, who then turned around and fought the Bolshevists. Albert Einstein came to the USA with Heim Weizmann. He disdained religion. He was a Jew by blood only, an atheist. He was secular. He came to the United States to make money. He was convinced to come here by Heim Weizmann. He tried to charge exorbitant fees to places like Princeton, etc. They said no. His whole reason for coming was because he wanted to create the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Warburg financed Einstein and his trip, and he was the one that tried to get him to come and make these big prices. Weizmann came with him, and of course, the real reason why they did this is they're trying to get money for Palestine. There was a big, uh, let's just say, Weizmann and and Brandes had a had a spat. They were not the best of friends, but Brand but. Brandy said about Weizmann, he said, the Easterners, like many Russian Jews in this country, don't know what honesty is. Interesting. Now, I should also mention that Harvard Law was a very Zionist organization, which is interesting when you consider that these are the people that produced Epstein and, uh, let's see, what's his name, you know, Dershowitz. Now, Einstein on, on Zionism, he said, 
Until a generation ago, ago, Jews in Germany did not consider themselves as members of the Jewish people. They merely considered themselves members of a religious community. But anti-Semitism changed that. And, that, and in there, therein was a silver lining to that cloud. The undignified mania of trying to adapt and confirm and conform and assimilate, which happens amongst many of my social standing, has always been very repulsive to me. He hated it. Now, I'll just say this about Brandeis. Einstein, they wanted to start a college in uh, Massachusetts, and they were going to name it as the Einstein College. This was after the Einstein University was set up in Jerusalem. But he basically, again, set uh, standards. He said that he wanted this and he wanted that, and they said no. So they basically named it after Brandeis instead. Interestingly enough, their colors are blue and white. They're a liberal arts and research place, and they're very big into researching flu and COVID and promoting vaccines. Now, again, I'm just wrapping this up, but Golda Meir, of course, she was born in Kiev. She was another labor Zionist, socialist, social Zionist. She was a Bolshevist. She was a friend of Stalin. Now, in 1958, interestingly enough, she praised Pope Pius XII for helping Jews. This is the same guy, of course, that made the deal with the Hitler. Now, also, she she basically set up the deal in the 70s where 200,000 Soviet Jews would leave through Austria. Okay, now, there's Austria again, Ottoman connection. Austria, of course, this was the beginning of the, let's just say, the fall of the Soviet Union and the birth or the reemergence of the Soviet mafia, the Russian Jewish mafia, the Chabad mafia. Uh, she barely spoke Hebrew and had a poor education, but she was a Pole Zionist. And she also should be remembered because she was the one that oversaw the Israeli atomic bomb. Okay. That is really all I want to share with you guys tonight, okay? I'm going to go ahead and leave it at that. I just want to remind everybody that this is the Stephen D. Kelly Show, uh, but I guess before I do that, I want to wrap this up real quick. Uh, the key thing here, I think, is morals. I think that all society and all culture through burial typically will develop some sort of religious ritual process. And as long as it doesn't draw blood of humans or any other thing, I don't have a problem with it. But unfortunately, a lot of this did, and this is the basis of many religions. Now, if those religions teach you to have morals, then the human law, and the, the law of, well common law, whatever you want to call it, we know right from wrong, and we don't need to practice immorality because it's somehow there's some religion out there that tells us thou shalt not do this or that. So it's very easy to reject a religious control structure without rejecting moral norms that have proven to be the basis of our society. And I think this is the real evidence of what Satanism is, and of course, with respect to the Nazis, I'm just going to show that the entire nonsense was concocted to try to get these guys back into Israel because this certain people thought it was important, and these people, for the most part, are Frankists who are also Satanists, and these are the very same people who are under the Getty right now doing these same blood ritual sacrifices, okay? 
Before I'll go, I'll mention that uh, Biden just created a new holiday here in the USA, Juneteenth, to celebrate the end of slavery, but slavery did not end. Okay? Slavery is alive and well underground in these bunkers. So, occupy the Getty. With that, I'm going to remind you, this is Stephen D. Kelly Show. If you want to help us out financially, send a donation to me at PayPal using stephenkelly714 at gmail.com. That's S-T-E-V-E-N-K-E-L-L-E-Y 714 at gmail.com. Thank you so much. If any questions whatsoever, send me an email to law17gun at aol.com. And I appreciate if you would share this as much as possible. And if you have any questions, please write them down in the comments. And uh, if you can find holes in, in what I presented, I would be happy to adjust accordingly. Okay, so with that, I'm going to say thank you so much for tuning in. So far, so good, huh? We don't need to take a break. I just had first. Hope you don't mind. Anyway, there's a lot of... Uh, I should mention that people, you do need to look for our Telegram group because there's a lot of backup information. I don't say backup information, but research information, maps, shall we say, support documentation that I would really appreciate if you guys would take a look at. All right. So with that, I'm going to sign off. Talk to you guys next week. Good night. God bless. Adios. And goodbye.